Welcome to the Tennis IQ Podcast. I'm Brian Lomax. And I'm Josh Berger. And in today's episode, we are going to be talking about Wimbledon, which just wrapped up. Um, on the women's side, uh, we saw Elena Rabakina win the title um, and faced Anz Jabour in the finals. And on the men's side, we saw Novak Djokovic win the title for his 21st his 21st uh, Grand Slam title against Nick Kyrgios, who was in the final for the first time. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about um, a number of themes of, you know, related to sports psychology, related to the mental side of tennis, um, and some themes that we picked up both in the finals um, and then some of the dynamics that took place in each of those matches, um, but also earlier in the tournament. And in, in, in you know these players earlier in the tournament, and then some other themes from some other players that that we observed. Um, and I think you know I, I think as we as we start to think about this, I, you know the the men's final which wrapped up just yesterday. We're recording this on um, Monday, the eleventh, July eleventh. Um, and I think you know the the, men, the men's final was interesting because it was really um, a clash of two very different both personalities and backgrounds, right? Where Djokovic, I believe this was his 32nd Grand Slam final. This was Nick Kyrgios' first. Um, And then also in terms of personality, demeanor, they couldn't be more different. Djokovic was, you know, calm, composed, relatively relaxed out there, considering the stakes, considering the circumstances. And Nick was... Nick. Nick was, was Nick Kyrgios, right? In terms of the underhand serves, in terms of the, um, you know, chirping and, and talking to himself and getting upset at, um, you know, at, at various things. Um, but I, I think that could be a good place to start just because we saw such a contrast in terms of the two competitors out there. Um, not trying to take anything away from either of them, but I, I, that, that was one thing that, that stood out to me as I was watching yesterday. And I think um, both players recognize that in their post-match press conferences. And you know, I, I love reading the post-match uh, press conference transcripts because I think, as we've said a lot of times, Josh, um, it's really about the experience of the players, you know, what they're experiencing it's, as opposed to what we are observing so much. And I think it's great to get their thoughts on what what they believed happened. And both of them pointed to composure, especially Djokovic's composure as being a key in the final. Of course, yeah, as you mentioned, there's a mismatch in experience in terms of playing Grand Slam finals. But um, yet, Nick played quite well, especially, you know, his first set, the way he came out, he was serving very well. And, and, and Novak, discussed how it's hard to play somebody who's serving so well. And we see that in other aspects of the sport when anybody's playing somebody like in, in Isner, where this John Isner was the serve is so huge and um, it puts a lot of pressure on you to hold your own serve when you're when you're playing an opponent like that. You have that kind of scoreboard pressure of that. And of course Novak is probably the best serve returner in the game now. Um, and so it was important for him to maintain that composure throughout. And that was something that Nick noted in his press conference was, um, 
that he felt like that was one of the big differences in the match was the was Novak's composure. Regardless of the score, he felt like he was never rattled. And I think that that's an important, you know, like if we're thinking about a mental toughness or sports psychology thing, just look at how Nick Kyrgios noticed the composure of Novak Djokovic during the match and that he was never rattled. That's that's a that's a huge advantage for somebody like Djokovic, whether that's locker room power, just being professional out there. Um, it's something the opponents will notice. And um, if they don't feel like you can be rattled, then that's going to have an effect on, on their ability to stay composed. Now, of course, like you mentioned, you know, Nick does things differently, chirps a lot. So maybe did that have an effect on, on Nick's behavior? We don't know. Um, he didn't necessarily say that because it's kind of, he was doing things he's done in past matches. But it's a th- I thought it was really kind of cool that Nick mentioned uh, how composed Djokovic was. And yeah, obviously there's a level of experience there. Um, so I think that was, you know, kind of a, a difference. But, you know, with that being said, Nick Kyrgios was there. Um, if he somehow he wins that four-set tiebreaker, and he mentioned this, he felt like it was anybody's match in the fifth. And that's always true. That the once you get into a fifth, anything can happen. I think Boris Becker was the one who said that the the fifth set is not about tennis; it's about heart and fight. And uh, that would have been an interesting thing, but it you know it didn't happen. And uh, uh, you know Novak played great in the second, third, and fourth sets. I think John McEnroe said something like that: some of the best tennis he's ever seen Novak play. And uh, you know when Novak gets into that mode of refusing to miss and then he starts layering on a little bit of aggressiveness and power to his game is extremely difficult to beat absolutely no i think novak is has especially when he's played well especially when he's won grand slams he gets into this mode as as you said where he's he's missing very little very infrequently and very, as we know, very tough to beat somebody who doesn't beat themselves, who doesn't give you anything, who's also able to, maybe he doesn't serve with the same power of a Kyrgios or a Opelka or Isner, but he's able to hit spots. He's able to, to hit aces, especially when he really needs them. And, you know, as solid as probably anybody in history from the baseline, not giving up a lot of errors, um, able to, you know, manipulate the point and, and use tactics um, in order to, you know, pull, pull opponents out of position um, and, and, you know, use power as needed, right. And maybe not be as powerful as a lot of the other guys, but play great defense, use great tactics, hit his spots. Um, and as, as we look at these um, transcripts, as we look at the, the post-match interviews, I think there's a lot of good stuff here. Um, one thing, you know, from, from Kyrgios, um, you know, he talked, and, and this wasn't in the final, but he talked earlier. I think it was maybe his pre, his pre-final press conference. Um, he talked about how his experience in the Australian Open was a big factor in him getting to this point. And you know, it, the Australian Open this year, he, him, and his his good friend um, Kokonakis, Donasi Kokonakis, um, won the men's doubles 
um, the men's doubles championship there. And, you know, he talked about, obviously it's different in terms of the endurance needed to get, you know, win seven matches at a grand slam and singles, and then to, you know, to go all the way and win the doubles. But he started realizing how over the course of two weeks, you have to really be consistent and be committed where I think it, at other points of his career, he's talked, he's talked openly about how, you know, he's gone out and partied and stayed up really late at times and hasn't always committed in the, in the way that maybe a true professional would, or, you know, in in the way that's needed to win match after match in a two week span. So I think he, he, it sounded like um, in Australia, you know, this, this past January, he noticed, okay, in order to be successful at that level, I have to be, you know, playing my match and then focused on my recovery and then focused on the preparation and really commit to that side of things rather than simply just playing the match and, you know, letting off some steam before the next one. So it sounded like that was a big factor in in him believing that he could do it or, or, you know, um, feeling like he had the tools to be successful at this level. I mean, you know, it's also interesting with, with Nick Kyrgios, you know, throughout his career, ever since he beat Nadal at at Wimbledon, I think when he was 19, might might need a fact check on that one, but I'm pretty sure um, he has always had so many expectations on him. People have always been saying, oh, you, you could be number one in the world. You could be winning grand slams. Or maybe maybe rather than could, people are saying should, right? You should be doing this. You should be doing that. Obviously, he's very talented. He has one of the world's biggest serves. He can hit winners from just about anywhere in the court. He's very athletic. So he has all of the physical tools. But at the same time, there have been things that have held him back, Um both I think from a mental health perspective, and he's talked openly about that, some of the struggles that he's had um, with depression and even having suicidal thoughts and um, self-harm. I think a few years back, he, you know, he t- he's talked about that more openly recently. Um, so both from a mental health perspective and from a mental performance perspective. And I think we still do see that at times where his mental game on the court can seem to hold him back, whether it's getting upset with himself or getting upset with the the people close to him in his box, right? And we saw that at times him getting, you know, getting upset at them um, for not, maybe not cheering in the right way or get him getting upset at, at um, the umpire or the line judges or, you know, even having scuffs with with opponents at times, whether it was Tsitsipas in this tournament or other players such as Vavrinka in the past or, or other situations. Um, but w- what I'm trying to say is that he has had these challenges in the past. Um, and I think they continued to a certain extent on, on the mental performance side, certainly. Um, but this is obviously a huge milestone and huge sh- has the opportunity to be a huge stepping stone for him too, where this is his first grand slam final. And yes, you know, there was a situation with Nadal and, you know, perhaps we can talk more about that, but you know, he's has now gotten to the point where people have for so many years said, you, you ought to be doing this. You should be doing this. You you're supposed to be, you know, number one or supposed to be in grand slam finals. And he had at that point. So, you know, I think a player can, 
view a situation like this as a milestone and then look to, okay, what's next? How can I continue raising the stakes with my professionalism, with my mental game, with my time in between points? We talk a lot about, you know, how can you maximize that time in between points? And, you know, that's something when, when he's chirping to himself or when he's getting upset about something and it seems like his focus is there in between points, maybe, you know, that's an area where he could continue to bring things to that next level. So I think there's a lot of good stuff here. I think a big part of it is him taking responsibility where I, I, I know I drifted a little bit away from this, but as we look at the transcript, he was asked about Djokovic's composure and hunger to, to win and asked about his own composure. And he sort of blew it off by saying, you know, I think 126 players in the draw could improve their composure. So, um, you know, that's to me, that's sort of evading the, the question. Um, but he said, yes, you know, I, I can obviously improve on many things in my game, not just composure. So he seems to at least recognize the composure is one area that he can improve on. Um, but yeah, I think it'll be very interesting to see where he goes from here because I think it it could be a, a turning point, right? In a in a positive way, you know, certainly. Um, so we'll see. Well, perhaps twenty twenty two is maybe the 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 year that he begins to figure things out and emerges. You know, I think this is also a a theme with Elena Rabakina is that um, everybody's on their own sort of path as to when their game matures, when they mature mentally and emotionally. And um, it doesn't have to be, you know, 18, 19, then you, you've made it. So, um, and I don't think we should ever give up on anybody. I mean, even if we go back to Australia, Gail Monfils had a great tournament there. And it, he almost was having these thoughts of perhaps a little bit of regret of not committing so much earlier, but, you know, he was where he was and he had a great tournament. And, Maybe Nick is now starting to figure some of that out. The experiences are building and building, and hopefully in a positive way. Because I think his Australian Open experience, Josh, you were getting at this, um, you know, getting, you know, winning that doubles title fueled belief. But he also noted how he felt like when he was on that court with Novak, he belonged there. And that's a good sense, right? We don't want people to feel like they're imposters out there. Like, how did I get here? I don't belong to be here that almost always will lead to a poor performance and i think anybody listening to this has probably felt that in certain situations where that they didn't belong i know I've, i i felt that you know um playing in a the first time at a high level and uh and it did it definitely affected how i performed so it was great that he felt like he he belonged and he also noted that having wins over novak in other matches helped with that belief although he did recognize that Beating someone like Novak Djokovic in a two out of three set match is very different than a three out of five, right? Two out of three, if you lose the first set, and really more quoting uh, Kyrgios here, but you know there's not a lot of room to breathe after that. You have to win. But you lose the first set of a three out of five, you can still settle in and be patient and, and, and wait to take your chances. Especially if you're Djokovic. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> given his conditioning as well, right, and everything the way he plays, um, absolutely. So I think it's great to see Nick talking about his self belief. I think that's awesome, and you know, and hopefully he can keep that together. Yes, his comment regarding composure, maybe evading it a little bit. Um, you know, I think 
he's right. Who couldn't work on their composure a little bit? And to be honest, Novak Djokovic hasn't always played every match with that kind of composure. But in general, when he's in a final, he's very difficult to beat. And so, um, yeah, what he did yesterday was 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 great. And uh, I'm sure the fact that, you know, he was playing a first-time finalist helped him with that composure, knowing that, all right, you know, Nick's going to go through some ups and downs, not only with his game, but maybe also his own uh, composure out there. And the steadier that he can be, uh, opportunities will present themselves. You know, and one of those, you, you mentioned, Josh, that when Djokovic is in that sort of refuse-to-miss mode, doesn't beat himself. And I think... I think we've talked about this concept a couple of times about learning how not to lose. And there was a key game. I think it was in that third set where Kyrgios was up 40 love. You can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but he was up 40 love on his serve. And Djokovic talked to himself about, all right, let's kind of just get him to 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 play some points here. Um, let me just focus on getting the return back. And, and it put a little bit of pressure on Nick, and Nick ended up, in Djokovic's words, losing that game, lost that game with unforced errors. Djokovic said he didn't win that game, but that ended up being a crucial break in that set, um, and it just shows you know, various things going on there. You know, we're up 40 love. What are we thinking? Uh, you down 40 love on the other guy's serve. Guy's serving huge. What are you thinking? Um, that was one of two critical games in which Djokovic was he was down love 40 on his serve in an earlier game in the second set. He's down 40 love in this game. Uh, so important to keep the game going as a as a competitor. You don't know what could happen. The game is not over at 40 love. That just means the other player is much more likely to win that game, but that's not a hundred percent certain. And uh, those ended up being you know two of the more crucial moments in the match, you know, looking, looking back on it. Um, so, you know, with that, does, you know, Nick Kyrgios, he's got a lot of positives, I think, coming out of this um, in terms of the belief, if he can uh, keep that going and keep the commitment piece going, like you were saying, Josh, because he did also say that he was very committed these two weeks, um, you know, got to the final and he seemed to realize, like he said something about, and I lost, and I'm, I'm, you know, I, I've been told that that's okay. It's good that he's got somebody on his team letting him know, hey, that's okay. You didn't, you know, you built up a lot of experience here. Maybe like Anjabur, you weren't quite ready to win this tournament, and um, and so if he can use this as more positive fuel, um, who knows what could happen at the U.S. Open? I mean, anything could happen at the U.S. Open. With, with Nick Kyrgios, but if he could continue to commit to doing this, I think it makes it very interesting. And uh, he obviously is uh, a guy who can beat anybody. And um, certainly when you go to a Nick Kyrgios match, you don't necessarily know what you're going to get. Yeah, that is that that is for sure. And I think it was interesting seeing, um, I think it's Prince, Prince George, the... Um, you know, in line with with the the royal family, um, sitting in the front row at a at a Nick Kyrgios match at you know at, at his age at what is he maybe around eight years old or something. It's an interesting decision, but um, no, you, you you certainly never know you know never know what you're going to get, and I think with somebody like him, uh, 
you know, it, he, he certainly has the ability to be enormously successful by locking in for those two weeks and for committing for two weeks where you look at other players and I think Djokovic would be a prime example of this. And Djokovic has talked a lot about his lifestyle and how his lifestyle between his diet, between his sleep, between even the type of water that he drinks, between, you know, the way he, I know he does a lot of stretching and yoga and flexibility and that shows on the court. But I think there's also a difference, right, in terms of somebody committing long term and on a day to day basis and somebody who's able to maybe, you know, with his talent and everything, able to lock in for two weeks and, and reach a Grand Slam final. Um, so I think that that is important. But I actually wanted to go back to something um, from the from that transcript, from the interview um, where Novak was asked about. Um, sort of a turning point. And I think we can also talk about as we start to think more about the women's final as well. I think there was a, a pretty clear turning point as well in that match. Um, but Djokovic was asked, um, you know, uh, he was asked a question and he brought up this turning point. He, he was talking about, um, I felt more pressure than when I was 40 love down for all in the third. He was cruising through this game. So Nick was up so Nick was up 40 love and they were at four all in the third set. And Nick ended up losing that game on his own surf. Um, and Novak said, you know, that, that 40 love game, he'll probably be very upset with himself for losing that game. I didn't win it. He lost that game with his unforced errors. And I'm, um, I just stayed there and pushed him to the limit and I got the reward. So I think that's a very interesting quote because, you know, there, there are moments where if you can stay out there, if you can continue to, push somebody and sort of keep asking the question to them of, you know, can they come up with the goods? You'll be rewarded for that. And especially, you know, something like four all or in the tiebreaker, the, the stakes are a little higher. The pressure is a little higher. People will crumble, right? Nick was going for big second serves through most of the match as, as he often does. And there were a couple of double faults there. Um, but I think, you know, and also when it comes to playing the top players, you can't beat yourself. And I think that that is ultimately what happened in that moment, right? It was a matter of multiple unforced errors from 40 love to end up losing that game. Um, so I think that, you know, that, that just shows, again, you know, these are small margins between top players in the world, but that's often what it takes. It's one game here or there that can be that turning point. And, you know, you, you're at one set all you're at four all and there's a break of serve and that's the that's the third set and then you know you go into the fourth set and obviously everything can happen but especially tough to come back from two sets to one against you know a, a, a front runner in the way that that uh Djokovic is so I, I think that was an interesting um point an, an interesting point in the press conference and I think it, it was certainly a turning point in that match yeah definitely you know, and again, getting back to the concept of uh, learning how not to lose. And um, these are the moments in which you have to kind of lock lock things down and uh, 40 love leave. You, you need to close that out. And, um, and you hate to look back and say, yeah, I lost that game. And then, you know, at that moment in time, of course, it's not a turning point. We can only describe it as a turning point now that the match is over because everything played out. But Who's to say that Nick couldn't just break right back? Could have. You know, he didn't, but he could have. You know, that's tennis always gives you the chance to 
to come back, reset, etc. Um, so I think this is a, also like you were saying with Jabor, there was also a turning point against Rabakina in that match. I think we both identified the same one. Um, and again, a little bit of learning how not to lose is, is I think, the, the theme of what happened there. Now, that match, of course, we had two first-time finalists. And um, the turning point that we identified was Jabur's first service game in the second set. Um, and she made really a couple of poor unforced errors to allow Rabakina to get to 30-all. And then Rabakina was able to really seize the moment and, and be more comfortable. And I think that that beginning of the second set to me is sometimes an unrealized critical moment in every match. And a lot can turn on that. It doesn't always do that. And it, it, it won't always play out that way. But it's a time in which we want to raise our focus, raise our intensity, and really um, be solid with our game, be disciplined with our game. And, you know, with Ons, you know, discipline isn't necessarily a, a word I would describe with her game because she has so many options. She's often, uh, it feels like just too many options. It's, it's hard to have a lot of discipline when you, you know, have 400 different shots you could hit based <laughs> on what is coming at you. Um, and there must be a lot of choice going on out there, as opposed to, say, like a Novak Djokovic, who I think has a very clear decision framework about where he hits the ball from what parts of the court. He's sort of the ultimate high percentage shot player. And of course, he'll break those patterns every now and then because you can't be super predictable. But then there's also the idea of being, you know, almost trying to be too unpredictable. And I think Shabor plays with very low margin over the net, tons of variety, and I think, <clears throat> excuse me, she helped Rabakina actually settle down in the beginning of that second set. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> she was able to run with it after that. You know, um, I think she really, her serve came online. She started to feel her ground stroke. She started fielding those drop shots much better. So, um, Again, though, you know, Jabor could have come back from that. So we, we identified that as a turning point now. But in, the, in that moment, didn't have to be. So what were your thoughts about that game, Josh? Yeah, I, I think that was definitely a, a turning point. I think that was definitely a moment when, you know, um, Jabor was pretty comfortable in that first set. And had she gotten off to a early lead in the second, we often see that's the end. Right. That's that's especially with like two know, first time finalists. Right. I mean, right. Exactly. It's and I think it, especially once somebody's down a set in a break, it can be very hard to have that to to keep your self-belief during that moment um, and, and to keep believing, hey, I can come back and do this. But if you lose a first set and then you break to start the second it's a totally different mindset where, okay, I'm, I'm up, I'm, I'm winning here. This, this set is now mine to lose in a certain way. Obviously there's a long way to go, but it, it's just a completely different mindset. And I, I think with Jabor, it's very interesting. And I think um, she often gets a lot of credit for good reason for the variety in her game. And that's deserved. And that, that actually sets her apart from a lot of her peers. Um, she uses the slice very well. She uses the drop shot 
exceptionally. Um, she volleys well. She has great hands up at the net. Um, and I think when it comes to variety, and I think actually there's a lot of parallels between her and somebody like an Ash Barty um, in, in, in many ways. Um, but I think when it comes to variety, obviously that's great. Obviously it keeps people guessing, but it can also work against you a little bit if you rely on it too much. If rather than you know, sort of playing that high percentage shot, as you were talking about with Djokovic, rather than playing that high percentage shot at times, you go to the unexpected shot or you go to that drop shot too often, right? Um, that, you know, the drop shot is most, the drop shot, if we're talking about that specifically, is most effective when it's a surprise, when it's a surprise tactic, when maybe you're inside the court, inside the baseline, and the opponent expects you to crush the ball into one corner or the other, and maybe they're behind the baseline, and then you go for a drop shot, and they're completely not ready for it. Um, but when a player uses the drop shot too much, and I think we see this not just with Jabor, I think Carlos Alcaraz, who obviously has an exceptional drop shot too, can fall into this trap. Once the drop shot is used too much, it starts to be expected, starts to be less of a surprise, and becomes a lot less effective. Um, where and, and I think we saw that we saw that where in the first set, Jabor was, was using the drop shot and bringing Rabakana to the you know, if, if Rabakana even was able to return it, she would be at the net and, and didn't seem quite as comfortable there. But then it seems like at that point in the match, early in that second set, and then after, um, Rabakana was able to get to maybe was expecting it more, was able to get to the drop shots, and then was able to capitalize more on them by you know playing well at the net so part of that could have just been that she she got used to it she settled in but part of it also that she was expecting it and ready for it at that point maybe because Jabor was using it a little bit too much or even relying on it too much at that point and I think the other sort of on the flip side of that with the the drop shot is Rabakina was playing better and better I think Jabor was feeling that pressure and probably didn't feel like she could be hanging in these rallies as much. And so sometimes the drop shot can end up being a way out of the point one way or another. All right. You're trying to end it. And, you know, we don't know that for sure, but that, you know, I have felt that I think you see that with a lot of players that their rally tolerance just isn't high enough and they need some exit from the point. And it ends up, oftentimes manifesting itself with low percentage shots. And certainly the drop shot is such a finesse shot that it requires, you know, really good feel. It requires confidence. Uh, you have to be, you know, somewhat loose with your body. It's a tougher shot to pull off when you're feeling tight and pressured. And so, you know, even the quality of our drop, drop shots, some were still really good, but others were, you know, sat up a little bit more. And, and Rabakina was able to, to retrieve those. So I think also got to give Rabakina some credit for putting on so much pressure that, you know, Ons felt like she had to, to, to do this. Um, so that was, that was an interesting dynamic, I thought. Uh, and, and I do think things really changed at the beginning of that, that second set. And I don't know about you, Josh, but I just didn't feel like once Rabakina kind of got into the match, I didn't feel like she was going to lose. Now, of course, anything can happen in tennis, especially um, when 
neither player has been there before, but it just it felt like if the tennis was going to go along in that way, um, her game was just looking more more solid than, than Jabor. And I would say mentally, too, she was quite composed, um, very calm throughout that. I mean, super calm even after winning the title, but I guess that's kind of who she is. And, um, yeah, so I think, uh, you know, there's kind of two dynamics to that whole drop shot situation and what was really going on there. Definitely, definitely. I think it definitely was not just ons and the drop shots. It was also, you know, the fact that Rabakina was was handling them better. The fact that, that she settled into that match, maybe had some nerves in that first set, which would be understandable for anybody in a in a Wimbledon final. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, her serve is something that, that she had relied on um, all tournament long. I mean, throughout her career, really. And I think in that first set, she didn't have any aces where she had been leading the, the tournament and on the women's side and, and aces up to that point. So she wasn't able to, you know, use that weapon effectively up to that point. But as she settled in, as she started to serve better, as she started to just, you know, play more solidly from the baseline, less things started to face her, like some of that variety and the drop shots and some of the surprises. Yeah. And I think um, if, let's perhaps look at some of the quotes from these two players, because I think they were, interesting and it revealed some different themes than the, than the guys did. Um, so I'll start with uh, Anz Jabor because I think um, she has really been, you know, climbing up the rankings, has wanted to be a top five player, has wanted to win a Grand Slam. She hasn't um, quite got that. And she, she noted that, um, that she wasn't quite ready to win a title of this magnitude, but that this is some great experience for her. And, and a lot of times you just need that experience. You just need the experience of going and seeing what it's like. And now that she knows what it's like to be in a grand slam final, if she's in another one, she will surely handle it better. And her belief is that she will win a grand slam title at some point. And that's again, uh, similar to with Nick Kyrgios and that self-belief, you have to have that. You have to go into these tournaments believing that you you can win those. So, um, but I thought she had some cool quotes, Josh, that I that I wanted to share because they're, I think they're they're great perspectives. Um, so the first one is tennis is just a sport for me. The most important thing that I fe- is that I feel good about myself, and this is good because sometimes players do tend to identify as tennis players a little too much. And that's where success and failure on the court can start to uh, have effects on other aspects of a person's life. But um, I think, you know, when we have talked about tennis more as a life project, that also helps you separate it from your identity as a person. It's just something that you do. It's a project in your life. It's not everything about you. So it's great that she has that perspective. So I'd love to get your thoughts on that. But also she said, I'm a really positive person. It is what it is meaning the loss. I'm very happy. That will give me definitely a lot of confidence to play more, right? The experience of doing this will give her a lot of confidence. She's generally a happy person. Um, I think you, you were telling me how she's uh, you know, been dubbed the minister of happiness, right, on the WTA tour. Um, having more positive emotions absolutely can help build something that we call psychological capital, in essence, your mental toughness. 
So the more positive that you can be thinking, um, the easier it is to handle difficult situations. So like the difficulty of such a big disappointment can be handled much more easily when you are more positive and, and optimistic for the future. So I think um, we won't see this loss have a detrimental effect. If anything, it will just be uh, help her continue to play better and better. She was talking about how she's really looking forward to the U.S. Open series or the U.S. Open. Um, and so uh, I think this could, again, for similar to uh, Nick Kyrgios, 2022 could be uh, a great year for Angebor. Certainly, certainly. And and she's made so much progress with her game and and it deserves to, to be in this moment. And I think, you know, has has really been um, uh, obviously, you know, Iga Sviantek has has taken for good reason. Most of most of the headlines this year and has been on, you know, up until this tournament was on a unbelievable winning streak, um, but has really been the clear second best player in the world this year. Um, and, you know, deserves this credit and, and should really view this as a stepping stone. And it seems like, you know, especially with, with those quotes is viewing it in a really productive way that, okay, this is a, you know, I wasn't ready to do it. And, you know, I, I can use this as a way to help me get to that next level. I'm excited to go to the U S and let's see what happens there. And with her game, again, we talk about her variety. She can really be effective on, on every surface. So it's just a matter of, you know, I think using some of those shots as weapons, as tools and, and not feeling the need to rely on them, feeling like she can hang in those rallies longer, feeling like she can play at times a more traditional style and then use, and then bring out that variety as really a, a separating factor. Um, I actually wanted to bring up a piece of Rabakina's press conference as well, um, where she was asked about the nerves, right? Um, so the question was, you said on the court, you were nervous before the match and during it. How did you manage your nerves? And I think the way that she responds to this question and the next question have a lot to do from, with that, you know, sports psychology um, self-talk piece um, that, that we, we talk a lot about on, on this podcast. Um, so here, here's what she said. She said, yes, I was super nervous. Yesterday I had a good practice, but in the evening I already started to feel like I'm too nervous in the morning also, right? And, and we would expect that, right? Going into a big match, you're going to feel some additional nerves. And in fact, if you don't, maybe that's a different, you know, I mean, maybe that's a problem. But okay, so she said that. And then she said, but I was just trying to tell myself that it's a match and I already had experience. I mean, for me, the worst thing, if you're up, then you lose the match. Unfortunately, I had many matches like this. So maybe it helped me a bit. I was trying to convince myself that it, it might happen again. And hopefully it's not the last time I'm in the final, not the first, not the last. I already did a great job with my team with these kinds of words. I was trying to calm myself down. So she talks about how she was, you know, using her self-talk, trying to intentionally calm herself down by reminding herself, ultimately, this is a match. I've been in plenty of matches before. Yes, it's a Wimbledon final. Yes, it may feel different, but ultimately, you have to play that match against whoever's in front of you, right? You have to play the dynamics of the match. You're not, you're, you don't constantly want to be thinking about, okay, this is a Wimbledon final. All these people are watching on TV. There's a huge paycheck on the line here and you know generally there's ranking points and you know thinking about these factors you want to be focused on the fact that this is a match and the fact that 
you have the experience. You've been in the situ, you've been in similar situations before. And, you know, she said, I had many matches like this. So, so that, that helped her a bit. And then the next question, which is connected to this, the question from the press conference was, were you saying that to yourself during the match? And she said, yes, during the match, of course, because I didn't start well. And she lost the first set. Um, after I was just trying to tell these things to myself, then I, I just focused completely on the match and what I had to do. Ons, I mean, she played unbelievable. She's a very tough opponent with all the drop shots and everything. After I, after I just moved completely to the match and was focused point by point. So, you know, she talked about, she didn't start well, right? That first set was not her best tennis, but she was trying to tell herself these things. She was trying to remind herself that she's been there, that it's just a match. And that, that last piece that she said that was focused point by point, right? Rather than getting ahead of ourselves, focus on focusing on winning the match, focusing on beating the opponent, on winning the title and all this stuff, focusing on point by point, focusing on that next point in front of you, which is really the only one that you have any sort of impact over. So um, I think from a, you know, mental toughness perspective that, that there's, she brought up a lot of great points there. Yeah, and I, I like the value of experience. Again, we've been talking a lot about that in our last few episodes. Of these are a lot of necessary experiences that players have to go through. So, like she said, you know, being up a set and losing, um, unpleasant at the time, but certainly if you're open to it, an experience you can learn from and, and come back from better. Uh, yeah, I like the idea though of her focusing point by point and fighting. Fighting is. Uh, I would say controllable. And, you know, one of the things that we want to make sure that we're doing in moments like that is having a high standard on our controllable behavior. So, you know, having a fighting attitude is one of those. Taking your time between points, having some discipline with your game. Those are all things that are, are controllable in that moment. And it's great that she was able to talk to herself to you know, bring that about. It'd be very interesting, you know, if she was using, uh, you know, we've talked about the coaching voice here, using your name, using second person, be interesting to understand uh, how she was actually phrasing that um, in her mind. But the fact is that she used some great self-talk to get her focused on what she needed to do. And it wasn't negative. It wasn't pessimistic. Uh, and so and it really can't be to get to this level of play, to get to a Wimbledon final, a player has to have at least, you know, some level of mastery over how they speak to themselves. Um, when we talk about learning how not to lose, mastering your self-talk is certainly one aspect of that. Because if you, your self-talk is at all negative or pessimistic, you've, you've lost focus on fighting the opponent and now you're you're simply batting, battling yourself out there. And tennis is too hard, especially at the professional level, to have two opponents, you know, yourself and then the person on the other side of the court. So great to see. That is a you know, wonderful example of self-talk being used in the moment to get through a tough situation and then, then come out with a, such a great outcome and result for her. So, yeah, I'm really excited to see what she does this summer, Josh, on hard courts. Again, like you were saying, she's been working really hard and been ascending the rankings. If there were points, she would be in the top 10. Um, but there aren't. And, you know, and I think all the players 
there was some discussion of this with Djokovic as well, because um, he's going to drop it to, to number seven now. Um, but they all had a good recognition of it is what it is, um, and that they can't can't change that aspect of things. So um, you, know, you have to be you have to deal with the hand that you're dealt, and that's all you can do as a player. I think um, you know there was some of that with respect to Kyrgios getting the walkover from Nadal. Because he did mention that it might have been helpful to have played a, a semi, but you know who knows his body could have used the break too. Um, but you know it's not certainly not Nick's fault that he didn't have a semifinal match, and you know you just have to deal with what's in front of you. And uh, I think Rabakina showed that that was uh, you know the way to approach that final. Certainly, and I I actually wanted to add in something else from from Rabakina and from that press conference. I'm not sure if you picked up on this or what your thoughts are. And I don't think we've, I don't, I'm, I'm pretty confident we haven't talked about this, but um, we talked about the fact that there's no points at Wimbledon. And obviously there's a reason for that, right? With Wimbledon making the decision to not allow Russian or Belarusian players. And I'm sure many of our listeners know this, but Elena Rabakina was born in Russia and has represented Kazakhstan for the since 2018 for the past few years. And what I thought was interesting, again, you know, continuing with our perspective here, we, we're not getting into the, the politics of, of everything, but she was asked a couple times about this. And I really liked the way that, that she responded, um, where, you know, one of the questions was, again, this is right after she's won Wimbledon. I appreciate you represent Kazakhstan. You obviously have Russian links. Is this is there a concern that Russia may try to pol- politicize this particular win? So that was one question. Another question, she was straight up asked, do you condemn the war and Putin's actions? I think people would like to know what your stance is. So she was asked pretty straight up on both of these things. And what I liked is that rather than sort of getting sucked into these types of questions and sort of bringing the attention away from her win and maybe trying and maybe causing a headline with you know her response on the war and on Russia and Putin and all that she was able to respond in a way and actually I think in a very intelligent almost politically savvy way of sort of pushing the question away and not answering it you know she said for the first question I don't know for me as I said on the previous interviews, I'm playing for Kazakhstan, very, very long time. I, I represented the biggest tournaments, Olympics, which is dream come true. I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, it's always some news, but I cannot do anything about this. And on the second one, she said, sorry, my English is not the greatest. I didn't understand the second part of the question. From my side, I can only say that I'm representing Kazakhstan. I didn't choose where I was born. People believed in me. Kazakhstan supported me so much. Even today, I heard so many support. I saw the flags, so I don't know how to answer the questions. So you know, she, as she said, she didn't choose where she was born. She was not supported by the Russian Federation and and Kazakhstan really believed in her and supported her. And she represents them. She does not control Wimbledon's decision to, you know, not allow Russian, Belarusian players. Um, And she's represented Kazakhstan. Uh, You know, she's, she's gotten a lot of support from the Federation. The the president of the Federation was there. She talked about that during this interview too. You know, people can read about that in the transcript. Um, We can post that in the show notes. Um, And, you know, I, I like that she wasn't distracted by these sorts of questions that I think really have the intention to distract. I mean, also, you know, I think people are, people 
are maybe limited in what they can even say. And I think we we saw this with some of the the other, you know, with some of the players that were representing Russia, like Medvedev and Rublev on the men's side that were straight up asked about things like this and maybe don't have the ability to speak openly about that because of what some of those consequences to them or their families could be. Um, so I, I like that she was she pushed off the question um, and really didn't answer it and didn't get sucked into to that sort of a distraction because I think that that could have that was a potentially dangerous trap that she avoided. As you said, is a politically savvy response. My guess is that she and her team have prepared her to receive these questions and that this be the way we deflect. Um, so answer the question, you know, in the way you want to answer it or, you know, answer the question that you want to, you know, have uh, or state. So, um, yeah, I think it's great that she was able to deflect because I think sometimes these, these are trick questions that people in the media try to throw out there and create a story where, um, as you said, Josh, this was asked after the Wimbledon final has had nothing to do with anything um, uh, in terms of what happened on that particular day, that there was no real need for these questions. But I'm sure uh, she was prepared for it, which is you know something all players who face the press need to uh, be prepared for so that um, yeah, you don't end up creating a story you didn't mean to create. And uh, this is why athletes, especially in, in America, I know in American pro sports, this happens. I'm not sure about other uh, professional sports around the world, but many of them do go through, you know, media training. And, um, you know, so that's that's uh, important. Certainly, certainly. And, and I think, you know, especially as a player rises the ranks and, and goes through some of that media training and, you know, especially when you're in um you know, under the headlights and, and you expect that you're going to be asked about things like this, especially during this type of a time. Um, yeah, she, she handled it, it really well. And, you know, she's, she's also, I think received maybe not criticism, but, but questions just for her very muted reaction, right? She won Wimbledon, didn't really react in a overwhelmingly, you know, excited way or, or, you know, over she wasn't overflowing with emotions. I think, to say the least, she was pretty stoic and did not show many emotions at all. Um, and you know, I, I think what's important is that you know she is able to to be herself out there and, and not feel like she has to. You know, she won Wimbledon. She doesn't have to worry about how she reacted, or maybe that reaction wasn't what other people wanted. Um, but she can be you know, be herself and, and act in a way that's, that's really true to her. And again, we'll, we'll see with, with her, she certainly has all the tools in her game as, as you know, is able to play very powerfully, stay very calm out there and, you know, play point by point as she talked about. And we'll see this, this could be a huge, maybe not in terms of ranking, but in terms of what she's able to do at this point, you know, going forward, I think I, I'm very excited to see. And, and a lot of players, a lot of, um, champions and legends of our sport, including Roger Federer, have talked about how winning their first Grand Slam title was just a huge moment in their career in terms of believing, you know, self-belief and believing that they could do it. And sort of once they were able to get over that hump, 
things became a lot easier. Um, so, you know, once a player is able to do it, and of course on the men's side, we haven't seen that too much with the, the dominance of, you know, Nadal, Djokovic, Federer, Andy Murray as well, um, over the last 15 plus, you know, I guess like 17 or so years. Um, so we haven't seen as many first time champions on the men's side, but on the women's side, we've certainly seen a number of them. And, and I think it could go either way, right? I think for some players, almost like a dominant team, they win that first title and then it's, they, they maybe struggle with, okay, what comes next? And obviously he's had injuries as well that have been really tough. Um, but you know, I, I for many players that that first title is really that, that launching pad for that next chapter and them, you know, continuing to really be successful. And maybe that takes time. I mean, for instance, Iga Sviantek, she won the 2020 French open. And then I think it took her a little bit of time to continue to build on that. Um, but I, as we've seen this year, she's been unbelievable. And then yes, she lost here at Wimbledon, but in general, she has been by far and away the, the dominant player on, on tour. So it'll be, it'll be very interesting to see what comes next for her. Yeah, and, and I would say that is true of uh, all the finalists. So, you know, Djokovic, he's waiting to see what will happen with the, the U.S. and its vaccine requirements, etc. But certainly Kyrgios, Anjabor, and Elena Rabakina certainly have a lot to look forward to this summer. We'll see if they can continue what they've, what they've started in 2022. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks, Josh, for a great discussion. Uh, thank all of you for listening. If you have any feedback or questions, please email us at tennisiqpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use the Twitter hashtag TennisIQ. Additionally, please subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice, including YouTube, so you can be notified of new episodes. You can also check us out on Instagram. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon in our next episode.